What exactly did Benjamin Franklin believe? Was he a deist? Was he a Christian? And more importantly, what does it matter to 21st century American Christians what this founding father believed? Well, today on my podcast, I'm joined by one of my favorite historians, Dr. Thomas Kidd. Dr. Kidd is a distinguished professor of history at Baylor University, and he's the author of several excellent books on religious life in America, particularly the colonial period. We'll talk with Dr. Kidd about why he was motivated to write a religious biography of Benjamin Franklin. We'll talk about Benjamin Franklin's relationship with the revivalist George Whitfield, and we'll talk about what we can learn from figures like Benjamin Franklin and how his faith sort of set the tone for American civil religion. This will be a fun conversation that I know you'll enjoy. Dr. Kidd, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So I have you back on because you have a a fantastic new book, uh, a religious biography of Benjamin Franklin. Let's first get started with just asking you uh, what was some of the motivation behind uh, working on this book? Was it spurred by your biography of uh, George Whitfield that kind of motivated that or some of your other work in colonial religious history? Sure, yeah. I mean, as you know, most of my work up to this point has been on um, religion in the American founding era, Mm -hmm. uh, kind of from the Great Awakening to the American Revolution. And as you suggested, I did a book in 2014 on George Whitfield, who's the most important evangelist of the Great Awakening. And it turns out that Whitfield and Franklin had uh, a long time a relationship, friendship uh, that started out as a as a business partnership because Franklin was Whitfield's key publisher in America. But over time, I think that transformed into a, a very warm friendship um, that lasted for thirty years. And um, other people have have noted that you know this is a very peculiar friendship because Franklin tells us in his autobiography that he's a deist. I mean, so that, you, know, you know that he fits somewhere within that right. um, purview of, of religion, and, and Whitfield is definitely not a deist um, as the leading evangelical preacher of the era. And so, I mean, when you think about it from a contemporary perspective, how hard it is to be to know or, or much less have friendships with people who are uh, very different from you on uh, religious issues. And so... It's it's a it's a wonderful friendship, but it's also intriguing about why Franklin seems drawn to uh, not only Whitfield but some other uh, traditional Christians in his life. Most importantly, um, his sister Jane Franklin Meekom, mm-hmm. who was uh, the sibling of his that he had the closest relationship with into his adult life, and and. Um, Again, totally not on the same page uh, as far as their religious views, but I had a very uh, sweet relationship, um, kind and um, long-lasting. And so th- I thought there's something going on here with Franklin. I mean, there, there's there's more to the story than just him being uh, the, the simple deist that he describes in his autobiography. And uh, sure enough, I, I think I, I found out in, in the research that there was just a ton of material about Franklin and his religious views and how they changed over time. Um, and so it, it ended up being a really uh, fruitful project to work on that gives us perspective, I think, about what 
uh, role that religion played in the founding, but then also on that very disputed issue of uh, what the religious beliefs of the major founders were. You know, it's it's such a rich time in terms of religious history, that, that whole founding period, the colonial period, even you know, the Great Awakening period. And I, I just, I find it just so thoroughly fascinating, uh, not just reading your Frank, your book on Franklin, but reading also God of Liberty about the, uh, religious liberty, you know, Baptists in America, uh, reading also about um, George Whitfield and Patrick Henry. And it seems like what's interesting about Franklin to me, reading your book, and what surprised me a little bit was just like you said, the volume of thought and uh, writing that he did on religious issues. I think you know, we often think of him as, as the founder, as one of the founders and sort of an inventor and kind of quirky, which he was, but not as a religious thinker. Were, were you surprised by the volume of, of how much you found? I was really surprised. I mean, going into the project, honestly, I thought it might be a little bit of a stretch to do a book on Franklin's religious views. And, and I will say that he gets quieter about them in the second half of his life when he's so preoccupied with diplomatic affairs in England and, and, and France. But in the first half of his life, especially, there's just a flood of material there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and one of the challenges was just how do you sort out all this stuff that he wrote about religion, sometimes on very technical theological topics. Mm-hmm. I mean, in the, in the 1730s, he gets involved with a, a dispute about a pastor, who, a Presbyterian pastor in Philadelphia who had been disciplined for heterodoxy. And so Franklin gets involved in some lengthy discussions about issues about original sin, about the imputed righteousness of Christ. I mean, this it's very high-level stuff. And you just think, I can't believe it. Because one of the things that's amazing about Franklin is his ability to kind of master subjects that he has no formal training in. Franklin only goes really to school for one year in his whole life. I mean, mm. He's almost entirely self-educated. And you, so then you see in science, of course, he becomes internationally renowned in his discoveries in electricity. But then uh, for my purposes, it's, it's amazing to see how he's able to engage in these very deep uh, theological debates, and he's read up on them and is able to participate intelligently in them. Of course, some of that is because he grows up in a Puritan family in colonial Boston, mm-hmm. and definitely he knows the Bible backwards and forwards from from early on in his in his childhood. He he knows the Bible so well, and that really gives him a head start on these theological writings. But even in, into later in his life. Um, you just see the Bible and theological categories and you know biblical rhetoric and phrases. It comes up all the time in his vast body of writings. Just, just everywhere he's dropping biblical phrases, and partly is because of his own knowledge, partly because he lives in such a heavily biblicist culture that that's just kind of the lingua franca. You know, it's it's what people understand. Um, so, yeah, I really was surprised at, at the volume of material that's available on Franklin and religion. Yeah, what what is interesting to me is, you know, Franklin obviously, I want to say rejected, but moved away from some of the, you know, the, the theology and the teachings that he learned from his parents, but still how influenced he was by it. And it seems like that way with most of the founders that even the guys like Jefferson and Franklin, who, 
you know, we're not evangelical Christians or Christians of any 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 sort, uh, admittedly, but we're still very, very influenced. It just speaks to the kind of influence that the preachers and uh, the religious kind of atmosphere had on these guys. That's right, and, and I think Franklin is, is probably the best example of that among the founders that, um, and of course we can attribute that to his parents' influence. I mean, it's, he's growing up, um, there's deep uh, Bible reading, catechism. He's probably going to church maybe two or three times a week um, hearing long, heavily doctrinal sermons. I mean, so that's an imprint. I mean, hearing those thousands of sermons probably cumulatively uh, in his childhood and teens, early adulthood, that's an inheritance that you don't get away from easily. And, And I think even when you look at somebody like Jefferson, who is probably the most strident skeptic among the founding fathers. Um, you know, Franklin's kind of a congenial skeptic, and, and Jefferson, especially late in life, becomes kind of an angry skeptic. Mm-hmm. But even with Jefferson, um, you know, he knows the Bible so well, not as well as Franklin, I don't think, but but he, Jefferson knows the Bible so well that he's able to interact with it, even in the notorious Jefferson Bible, uh, where he cuts out, parts of the Gospels that he doesn't think are true, um, including the resurrection. Mm-hmm. But but uh, the, the fact remains that he has that kind of verse-level knowledge of the Scripture that he's able to interact with it that way. And I mean, when you compare it to you know today's kind of new atheists, so, you know, sometimes you get the impression that these people don't, they don't know almost nothing about, about religion or the Bible, but they, you know, they've yeah. styled themselves as the great antagonists. <laughs> I mean, I think, I think they could take a cue from Franklin and Jefferson um, and their deep learnedness about uh, religious tradition and the, and the Bible, even if uh, they, Franklin and Jefferson certainly come to very different conclusions than I do about issues like the divinity of Christ mm-hmm. and the authority of Scripture. You wrote a pretty provocative Washington Post column about saying that perhaps uh, Franklin kind of helped develop this unique kind of American uh, civil religion or American faith. Uh, was, was he sort of the original moral therapeutic deist, in a sense, where he, he sort of pick and choose what works for you in terms of religion? Yeah, I think in a way he was. I, I, I mean, I, and I don't want to be... Uh, trivializing Franklin because, you know, when you think about today the purveyors of, of moralistic therapeutic deism, I mean, like Oprah Winfrey or mm-hmm. or Joel Osteen, people people like this, I mean, it, it it's kind of hard to take some of these people seriously right. on a religious theological level because it's just not that, it's, it's not that robust. Um, but I, I think in his way, uh, Franklin was uh, a kind of pioneer of that sort of religion and and here's what I mean. I, I, I call it, um, in Franklin's version, uh, doctrinalist, moralized Christianity. And part of the reason I, t- I talk about moralistic, therapeutic deism in the book, but I don't think that the therapeutic part is very important for Franklin. Um, it has more of a hard edge mm-hmm. for him, and it, I think it's it's much more intellectually serious for him. And there, there is a way in which I think he saw himself as a Christian. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jefferson said, you know, I'm a Christian in, in the only sense Jesus ever wanted one people to be, which means not acknowledging his divinity to, to Jefferson. <laughs> um, so th- th- these kind of deists, I think, saw themselves as recovering 
true uh, original Christianity by only emphasizing uh, Jesus's moral teachings and setting aside the doctrinal claims about Jesus as uh, the Son of God, uh, as divine, and as the, the Messiah of God, the unique Savior of the world. All those things. Franklin thought that we can, you know, if you want to believe those things, he, th- he said, that's fine. I don't, I don't object to it um, for, for you. Um, but the most important thing is that we live out Christ's moral teachings. And, I, and he suspected that some of the claims about Jesus being the Son of God uh, were added later um, by, by his followers and the authors of the New Testament. Um, and, and, and so in that, you can see this tendency towards saying, well, what you believe is kind of up to you. It, it doesn't really matter that much one way or the other. We, that may be true for you. It's not true for me. Um, that was so common today in American society. But that what matters the most is the kind of life that you live and that you should live a life of, of kind of significance and, and virtue, at least according to your own uh, lights about moral standards. And, and so I think that setting aside of doctrine as kind of optional is, is really where Franklin makes his, his salient contribution to this kind of um, deistic kind of you, you know spirituality, really, that, that we have so common in America today. I really think it's the most common sort of spirituality in America today. Mm. It, it's interesting, too, the, the real aspects that stood out to me about his faith when reading your book was, um, first of all, he really seemed to want a Christianity that was expressed in good works and doing, you know, Christianity that would motivate people to do good things for others and be exhibited more by uh, its works than getting into some of these you know messy theological debates, at least in that one case where we talked about where he was upset that this pastor was removed for heterodoxy, that he seems to make the case that he wants a Christianity that's more exhibited by good works. That was the first thing that was really struck me, how, how important that was to him. But the second thing, too, was how in his own personal life with his, you know, uh, very... Um, I would say Corinthian morals that he seemed to always be like pulled back in to a kind of a biblical morality, like it, like it kind of had a like it was his conscience almost. Yeah, you know, th- that was interesting to me as well. Yeah, well, I think that the, there was a sharp distinction or, or disjunction um, between his professed. Uh, commitment to uh, Christian morality, and then especially later in his life, um, by the time he reaches you know his fifties, he he engages in a series of um, inappropriate at best relationships with often with much younger women, um, and I, I think that um, he he was very careful about his public image. Um, as a, a public servant, as a man of integrity, and these kind of things, and, and there really there was an, a lot of substance to that. I mean, it, it you know he, uh, for instance, when he um, helps to found the Philadelphia Hospital, the first hospital in in America. I mean, he makes an explicitly Christian case for why we need to take care of the least of these, and he really puts his money where his mouth is on a lot of these. I mean, he gives a lot of money to various churches. He even gives money to help build a synagogue in Philadelphia. 
So, I mean, there, there's a lot of substance to this public sort of persona of, um, you know, service, benevolence, charity, taking care of the least of these. And even on a private level, I mean, he, he makes sure his sister Jane is, is very poor, um, and he makes sure that she's taken care of. And so, you know, there, there's a lot there, but then there's these kind of glaring uh, contradictions in his relationships with, with these younger women, uh, some other issues in his life. And, and, and I, I think maybe uh, the way he would have rationalized this is, is that um, the, the emphasis is especially on public morality, um, that, that because he's a, a public servant and because he's independently wealthy, uh, because of his work in the print business, um, that he has an obligation um, from Christ's teachings, but also just the, the, the Republican ideas, small r Republican ideas that are um, everywhere in the 18th century, says that, that you know those kinds of men, especially, you see this most abundantly in George Washington, uh, have an obligation, an ethical obligation to serve the public interest with integrity, um, and sacrificing your own interests for the good of the public, um, but that maybe that leaves some space in in Franklin's mind, and maybe you know I, I know that there will be some excusing and rationalizing of, of this this sort of behavior that maybe on the private level that kind of leaves the door open for some of these shenanigans he gets involved with. And, but but I mean it is it is notable how he 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 talks so much about his code of virtue that he says he holds himself to, but he never really explains how these relationships with women uh, match up or, or contradict that, that code that he had committed himself to. Mm. Well, let's talk a little bit about his print business and the really unique partnership with George Whitfield, but others. And he, he seems to be one of the early people who kind of saw the value of of publishing in America. And I don't know if you can call him one of the first Christian publishers, but in a sense, you almost can, can't you? Well, he's definitely, uh, arguably, the most important printer with regard to the spread of the Great Awakening in, in America, um, because he is Whitfield's key printer, um, and he's publishing other key texts uh, in, involved with, with the Great Awakening, um, occasionally prints things by Jonathan Edwards, um, and, and so uh, he, he is opportunistic, of course, in his printing. Um, when he meets Whitfield, I think uh, Franklin, of course, is a quick study on so many subjects. But he realizes that when he meets Whitfield and begins to hear about Whitfield, that this guy is a cash cow, like, like nothing he had ever seen before. <laughs> that you know, that that getting a hold of his stuff. Printing his sermons, printing his journals mm. is going, going to just make an enormous amount of money for Franklin, and it does. But Franklin is also publishing um, anti-Whitfield material, mm. so so he'll I mean he'll take whatever, and he, he's happy for the controversies about Whitfield, um, <laughs> any kind of press coverage, and 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 so Franklin is is publishing Whitfield stuff. He's publishing anti-Whitfield stuff. He's covering Whitfield in the Pennsylvania Gazette, Franklin's newspaper. Um, they, Franklin's even selling um, what, for the time, were these sort of sort of mezzotint portraits of Whitfield <laughs> out of his <laughs> bookshop. I mean, it, it's a, it, he'll ta- do whatever it, you know to to feed into this kind of frenzy about Whitfield that turns Whitfield into the greatest celebrity of the era, mm-hmm. um, for sure. I mean, I, and I not I don't mean just religious celebrity. I mean celebrity of any kind. And so you know, 
Franklin is um, not out of conviction, I think. Although, as I said, I mean, he does come to really admire Whitfield, but but Franklin first and foremost sees the Great Awakening as business, and he's willing to facilitate it uh, in in that light. Mm. Let's talk about his relationship with his sister uh, Jane. It seems like it it was a good relationship, but became strained at times. Was strained uh, due to sort of theological differences. Maybe speak into that a little bit. He and Jane, of course, um, I mean, like like with all their siblings, they grow up in this Puritan household, and Jane remains very much a Calvinist, and um, as the Great Awakening is unfolding, uh, an, an evangelical Christian, um, and uh, so she sort of stays the course while Ben is veering off, but they uh, are, are close to one another, um, they're, they're close in age, um, and they uh, remain in contact. Just, I, I think that they have this kind of close relationship that endures for decades. Um, I think Ben is concerned about her because she's her her husband is really struggling financially, and so they're they're poor. Mm. Um, but uh, they have remarkable exchanges about faith, um, it, and and oftentimes we're only hearing one side of the story because. Um, so much of Ben Franklin's correspondence, of, of course, survives. Where you know, some some point in the past, people were were throwing away Jane Franklin's letters, which you just makes you sick. Oh, um, you, you know, but, but you know, an 18th century woman who needs these letters? Oh, uh, so, yes. Um, so it's sort of like listening to one side of a of a phone conversation somebody's having. Um, but you can tell that it was especially one time when. Franklin visited Jane Meekham in, in, in Boston, and they argued about something about religion, probably about that she could see that he, he was turning away from traditional faith, especially about belief in, in salvation by grace alone. I mean, Franklin becomes uh, insistent that if, if there's a future judgment, they were rewarded according to our works. And uh, for Jane, she knows this is bad, bad, bad theology. Uh, bad for Ben Franklin to believe this, and and so she, I think that they have probably a fight about it, um, and he he uh, writes to her later and kind of apologizes, but doesn't apologize really, and he he even tries to bring Jonathan Edwards in on his side. I mean, it was it's, it's an amazing uh, letter that he writes to her because he cites Edwards as saying that um, God values. Um, uh, charity and kindness to your neighbor and, and love for the you know, service to the least of these rather than religious observance, you know? And, and so he, he tries to kind of tell her, and it's amazing. He cites Edwards and on like, you know, somewhere deep within this, this uh, text by Edwards. Um, and so it's clear that Franklin had read it. It wasn't something that he published, but it was something that he must've read, uh, uh, most of this book, and so he says, "See, Edwards is on my side," and of course, I'm, I'm sure Jane would have originally, uh, instantly realized, "Now, Edwards is not on your side in this in this debate," because Edwards, of course, knows that if we're talking about salvation, that we're saved <laughs> only by by grace, um, and so I think Ben knew that, and for, mm. he, he often would be provocative this way, saying things that Christians knew weren't 
weren't true. But, mm. but anyway, um, they, their relationship, Jane and, and Ben's relationship endures uh, well into the revolution. Um, and uh, I mean, he, he writes to her when George Whitfield dies in 1770, because he knows that Whitfield meant so much to both of them. Um, so it's a very sweet relationship, even though they, they understood they weren't on the same page in terms of religion and theology, but uh, the relationship endured anyway. It seems like Ben Franklin would be a very entertaining conversation partner over dinner or something. Yes. I can't imagine what those conversations would be like. Would you describe him as a as a deist? It seems a little bit more complicated than that. That Did he have a view of providence? I mean, what? how would you describe his... His view, views. right? Well, you know, a lot of a lot of uh, evangelical Christians will balk when you you know say protest when you, you say that any of the founding fathers were deists. But I mean, Ben Franklin says he was a deist in his autobiography. <laughs> so I mean, that is sort of got to take him at his know, word. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if we're not going to engage in what's often called revisionist history, we've got we've got to go to what the sources say. And and, and Franklin says he was a deist. So. You know, we know he was some kind of deist, but then the problem comes that he repeatedly is doing and saying things that don't sound very deistic. Uh, they 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 don't sound evangelical either. But but um, and most notably, um, he is the one who, at the Constitutional Convention in 1787, he asks the convention delegates to open sessions with prayer. Uh, this is a strange scenario because deists aren't supposed to believe in prayer. Uh, they, as you suggested, they don't. They're not supposed to believe in the providence of God or God intervening in human affairs. Um, so this tells you that um, there's more to Franklin on the on that issue. Now, I think early in his life, he does go through a very radical phase where I think he was doubting a lot of things. I don't. I don't, I don't think he was tinkering with atheism necessarily, but, but kind of everything short of that, um, he, he, was, he was looking at it in his radical phase. But as he goes into more mature adulthood, I think that Franklin becomes convinced by the weight of events in the American Revolution, um, his own struggles with, with his health. He's, he, for much of his adult life, he's struggling with health issues um, and his relationships with George Whitfield, with Jane Mecom. Um, I think helped to bring him back to this belief that God must uh, be involved in human history somehow, maybe not in a meticulous way, not a, not a way that we can say, well, he caused the Patriots to win this battle and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, sent the fog bank in just on t- just in time so that they would mm-hmm. win. But the, but the God is, is ruling over the course of history and bringing about events like American independence. And so by the time he gets to the convention, he makes clear that he not only believes in a creator God, but that God is ruling over uh, history by his providence. But I don't think Franklin saw that as contradictory to deism, because Franklin uh, saw deism as sort of synonymous with kind of what original Christianity was about. And that certainly could could include for him uh, this, this doctrine of providence. It's just that when you get deeper into the details, uh, essential details of, of specific Christian doctrines, um, that's where he starts to part ways with people like Whitfield. Mm. As Christians are studying uh, history, particularly American Christians, uh, revolutionary history, are studying about some of these um, 
pivotal figures like Ben Franklin and the religious history. Talk to us about the way that we should evaluate them and how we should think. I think sometimes there's a tendency, you know, to either, um, you know, try to make them what we hope they are in terms of their Christian faith or lack of Christian faith, or maybe the and the opposite be sort of super cynical and not see any engagement with uh, Christianity. So how, how do we do history well when we're reading and evaluating these people? Right. It's, 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 a, it's a critical issue today because the question of America's founding and whether we're a Christian nation or not is, is such an inflammatory historical topic in, in, in politics today. Um, it's, it's arguably one of the most controversial uh, historical topics in politics today. And so um, a lot of times, as you suggest, some Christians, I think, get a little exuberant about trying to fit even people like Jefferson and Franklin into a traditional Christian mode. And then on the secular left, you have a very similar phenomenon where you you, you say, they'll say, uh, you know, none of the founders are Christians. Religion mm-hmm. had nothing to do with it. Well, these are very politicized, polemical kinds of versions of history that we have to be, um, you know, careful about engaging in. I mean, obviously, we want to we want to tell the truth. Um, we want to be responsible to what the documents say. Um, and you know, I would be the first in line to tell you if Jefferson and Franklin were Christians. I would love it if they were Christian. I wish they were Christians, mm-hmm. um, but I, I can't say that as a, a traditional Christian myself um, because they don't believe that Jesus was the Son of God, or at least in Franklin's case, he wasn't sure about that. And, and so I think if it gets a little easier if we just make sure our priorities are in line. I mean, if Orthodox Christian doctrine, biblical doctrine is our first priority, then we have to sort through um, what they say about Jesus, uh, what they say about the Bible, um, and these other key doctrines, the Trinity, um, and uh, see how that matches up to what we know is uh, small Orthodox Christian doctrine and let the chips fall where they may. I mean, it's certainly not, I mean, there are founding fathers who are clearly uh, traditional believers. Uh, Patrick Henry, for instance, um, is one. Uh, Some of the other major founders are a little more guarded. It's harder to pin them down on their traditional, uh, their personal beliefs. Washington, for instance, is pretty guarded about what he actually believes. But I think the problem for Christians comes in where if American civil religion is kind of competing with Orthodox Christianity as our top priority, and I'm I'm afraid sometimes that's what's happening is that you know mm-hmm. being an American um, it becomes really essential to our our, our faith, um, which which I think is really a problem. I mean I, I'm certainly a patriotic American, but it is a distinct separate second place uh, to me being a Christian and a member of God's Church throughout the world and throughout history. Um, but if, if American civil religion starts inching in, then you can understand that we have a civil religion that has saints, um, and they're the founding fathers. And if we have a civil religion with saints, then we need those people to have been Christians. Mm-hmm. Um, and and for, for me, again, I would love it if Franklin and Jefferson were traditional Christians, but if they're not, it doesn't make any particular difference about my faith. I mean, right. what, what, does that, what does that do to my faith? I mean, yeah. my, my faith is based on Christ and the Bible, and this, it doesn't have anything to do in particular with the American founding. Mm. So I think it's as long as we keep those issues uh, distinct from one another, 
we won't have any problem in just letting the evidence lead us to the conclusion that uh, Franklin is very knowledgeable about Christianity. I think as an adult, uh, very respectful towards the Christian tradition and good friends with Christians, and even does some Christian-sounding kinds of things like proposing prayer at the convention. But if he doesn't affirm Jesus as the unique Savior and the Son of God, um, then he's not a Christian. Mm, yeah, that's good work. And and really, it seems important for us to be people who care about the truth and, and what's, what's really true. And really, I would I would say to those listening, important to know history, to study it. I happen to love uh, reading this stuff, so I'm a little bit of a nerd that way, but I think it's important for everybody to Me know too. history, just because it seems to really help shape the way we think about uh, current debates, if we have that sort of historical context. Yeah, I think that's right. And and I mean, you will, you know, it's, it's as fresh as today's newspaper about, you know, some Christians really insisting on America being a Christian nation, and then that uh, heavily influences the way that they approach politics uh, today, what we need from our politicians and so forth. Um, but I, I think we, we would do better to take a step back, uh, make sure that we're, we're very clear about what our ultimate allegiance is, um, and that we can have a very robust secondary allegiance to the American nation, the American tradition. Um, but, but keep in mind that the kingdom of God is, is number one. And I think that from there, our views of politics, our view of the Republican versus the Democratic Party, and then our view of the American founding period, it's not that hard to get it sorted out, even though it may be more complicated than we would wish. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Kidd, for, for joining us today. Really appreciate your work, and I encourage everyone to, to go and get this great new uh, religious biography of Benjamin Franklin. And I will also add as a side note... Uh, that you have a fantastic newsletter. So if people go to your website, we'll post a link to it, uh, which has really fresh tips on productivity and writing and everything like that. So I encourage people to get that as well. But thanks for joining us today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to The Way Home Podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please let us know by writing a review on iTunes. You can catch previous episodes on danieldarling.com. The Way Home is produced by Gary Lancaster and scheduling by Marie Delph. The Way Home is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention.